This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 211. About 32, well, with, with the profit on the sale, we ended up, uh, our, our net income was 32360 on a $29,000 purchase. So we made 111% profit on our on our investment <laughs> over a 12-month period. That's awesome. And we, I never period. even had to go look at the house. So for me, notes, that example is a, is a small home run. It basically portrays how you can invest in an asset without having to deal with all the liability in that asset like you would as a, as a homeowner, as a landlord. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com. Your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. What's up, man? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm super excited. You know why? Why? Because I am going snowboarding tomorrow. And I wow. haven't done that since I was like in high school where I broke my arm. So I've got a good record. Everybody on the slopes. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. And you know, I'm just gonna do like the thing that annoys everybody on the slopes. I'm gonna go down like you know, like when you go down sideways, you just go on a snowboard yeah. and just wreck all the snow. That's me. We're like nine foot two inches tall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. First of all. Your and, mom and, is that your mom? Is she calling you again? What? Is that your mom so, calling? You should totally saying, answer you're that. Nine foot two inches tall, and <laughs> that's gonna hurt when you fall on your behind. It is gonna and hurt. You spend a lot of time on your behind. You know, I'm okay so, with that. And yeah. Anyway, <laughs> by the way, I, I can see you. You're you're wearing the, the same red plaid shirt you wore last week on the I don't, intro outro. Actually, don't. No, this isn't my shirt. I'm actually shirtless right now. This is tattooed. Not. <laughs> You have not shaved the beard. Nice I do. Beard. I will not shave the beard. Here's the, here's the deal. I'm not going to shave the beard until I get a, a thousand units. I will shave my beard at a thousand units. I wow. <laughs> Just nine hundred and forty really, to really go. Your daughter. Yeah, you know, whatever. That's all right. No, she needs a new swing set so now she can hang from your chin. Rosie loves the beard. She she grabs on and gets really excited and tries to yank it out. I don't know. Gonna get some new pets for the house and so the fleas are still there. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great thing. You really gotta try it. You yeah, know, man. girl a little stash. I can see you with a good like, you know what do they call those? Porn stashes? Is that what they call them? <laughs> I wanna see that. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, hey man, so uh, congr- good luck on on your ski trip. Thanks. Have lots of fun. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be a blast. It will be amazing. So anyway, let's get on with the show. People are tired of hearing about my fleas and your <laughs> porn stash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get on with it. All right. Well, before we do, why don't we get to today's quick, quick tip? tip? All right. Quick tip, Brandon, take it away. All right. So quick tip today is this. We've, we've said this a long time ago, but in case you're brand new and you don't know this, uh, in the Bigger Pockets forums, you can do what is called an at mention. You know, the little A with the circle around it, like Brandon at Bigger Pockets, that kind of thing. So you can do it at and then somebody's name in the forums and it'll actually call them into the, the conversation. So let's say you're talking about Airbnb vacation rentals and you're like, hey, my buddy Josh, you know, has 400 Airbnb vacation rentals. He could probably answer this question. So you can be like at you know, at sign Josh Dorkin, and then it'll pull up him. Now, keep in mind, you do have to be colleagues with somebody to do that, or they have to be in the thread already. But there's your quick tip for today. Call people into conversations, and uh, if you think they can help. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Passive income without the property headache, it's possible. 
There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. All right, guys, this is, like we said before, this is show 211 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. You can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 211. And if you are a new listener to the show and you find that you are enjoying it, please do jump on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you're listening and subscribe to the show. And, and of course, if you've enjoyed it, do leave us a rating review. If you didn't enjoy it, you know, let us know. So with that, let's get to today's guest, Bob Malecki. Bob started out buying a couple of rentals in cash, then started flipping houses. He's flipped more than 25 homes. Then he got into note investing. And then, and then, and and then. <laughs> He's Bob done a lot is, of stuff. Yeah, Bob's like, Bob's on it. But today, like, I'm pumped. I'd like, Bob's great. You know, he's been an investor for nearly a decade. He's done everything. Rental houses, flipping. Uh, his primary business, though, is note investing today. We've talked about it a few times on the show, and it's a topic that, I don't know, I'm I'm always interested in. It. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. He also shows how he's purchased properties out of state through turnkey companies. He dives into the idea of IRA investing, investing, investing in your IRA for tax savings. And we, we dive in really deep on a lot of topics. So it's great. Make sure to take notes. If you're driving, stop. If you're in the shower, you know, I don't <laughs> want to know about it. But with that, let's bring in Bob. All right, Bob, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this should be a lot of fun. So, uh, Bob, you are, I believe, located in my area, right up near Seattle, right? Right. I'm located in Kingston, Washington, which is about 30 miles uh, northwest of Seattle across Puget Sound on the Olympic or on the uh, Kitsap Peninsula. Very so cool. beautiful area. I, have, I view you the like Olympic Canadian Island. or something. <laughs> Sorry? You Canadian then? <laughs> Almost. Not, not right. quite, but, you know, it's, it's up there. Close enough. 
Uh, well, very cool. Well, well Bob, how, how, let's go back to your story. I mean, like, how did you get started with real estate? How did that come about? When was that? Yeah, it was about uh, late 2007. Uh, my wife and I uh, inherited some money from our parents. Uh, they passed away. And I was at the time reading some uh, rich dad books from Kiyosaki. And I read a book called Equity Happens, which made a lot of sense. So I decided to invest that money into real estate. Uh, we ended up buying a uh, first property was a fourplex in Silverdale, about 20 miles south of us. And the other one was a duplex in Bremerton. We took the money and used it as our down payment um, and leveraged each property about 80%. Now, remember, this was at the peak of the the market. Yeah. So we bought them at top dollar. Um, we still own them. Ask me, ask me why. <laughs> We ended up, you know, buying, drinking the Kool-Aid from the mortgage broker. Oh, everything's going up in value. You can refinance out next year, take that cash, buy another property, blah, blah, blah. So we bought into that through our naivety and newness into the business. Um, fortunately, the properties have appreciated in income. Uh, we've been able to get our rents up over the past 10 years or so. And we're probably netting uh, between the two properties a little over $200 a door. So that worked out pretty well. Okay. Uh, and of course, getting the tax breaks and so forth. So that got us into real estate. Um, I had already run a business, uh, an ISP on Bainbridge Island. I came from basic, te- basically technology. I was working for Adobe on uh, in Seattle prior to that. So I already knew how to run a business. I basically had to apply that to real estate. So in 2008, um, I started buying homes in Kitsap and flipping. I read up, read up on flipping, studied all my did all my studying. And we ended up, well, to date, I've flipped probably over 25 homes here, which isn't a ton, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a business. We still have our rentals. We ended up buying uh, some turnkey rentals in Memphis through a turnkey provider. Um, what we did was actually, rather than buy them directly, we, we opened up, my wife and I each opened up a Roth IRA about five years ago. And we pooled our IRA funds with another family member's funds created an LLC, and that LLC bought those turnkey rentals in Memphis. I also did some flips in Memphis as well through the same provider that bought our help to buy our turnkey properties and rehab them. Okay. So, so yeah. before we go on further, I want to unpack a lot of what we just talked about. Josh, did you want to go first? I know you had. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to jump on the Roth thing. You know, for those people who don't really know what that is or why you did what you did, what is a Roth IRA? And why would you buy property in the IRA? Okay, great questions. I I hate it when people say great questions, so I'm sorry I just said that. But anyway. (laughs) Great great, great comment, Bob. (laughs) Thank you. So basically a Roth IRA is a tax-sheltered IRA that – your income, when you when you contribute to it, you pay tax on that income, but that contribution is then tax-free when you take it out when you retire. And you can grow that IRA through real estate pretty much other than six asset classes. You can grow by, by oil and gas. You can buy land. You can so forth and so on. So for us, it looked like a great way to build up our, our retirement income and our retirement nest egg tax-free rather than a traditional IRA, which is basically you put the money in tax-free, but when you take the money out at retirement, you're going to pay whatever the tax rate is on that income. So a Roth is really a great vehicle for building tax-free retirement income. So why would somebody want to go Roth and not regular IRA? Well, what's the benefit of, and you said one, you pay taxes before we put it in the money, one, you pay it at the end. 
Right. So the regular IRA, if we were to just keep a regular IRA and build this up to, let's say, a million dollars and withdraw that money at, you know, in 30 years, then we're going to pay tax on that million dollars at whatever the tax rate is in 30 years. Whereas with a Roth, we've already paid our tax on that money when we put it in, in today's tax rates, and we're taking it out tax-free in, in 30 years. And so you assume for, that your tax will be lower today than in the future? Is that your assumption? Yeah. You assume you're going to make money, right? You're going to be richer when you're get older, too. You'll probably be in a higher tax bracket, potentially. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So it's a great vehicle for uh, saving for retirement. And any any of your listeners who are you know uh, into re- having money for their retirement, I highly encourage them to open up a Roth. Just five hundred dollars, get an account started. Open one for your kids. You know, it's not that expensive to maintain a Roth, and then you can build your, build up the equity in it over time. Cool. What company do you have your Roth through? Just out of curiosity. I use a company called SunWest Trust. They're okay. in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There's probably, you know, 20 or 30 custodians and administrators out there. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good. I've worked with various investors who have their retirement accounts in different with different companies. And I've gotten to know the the good, the bad and the ugly, so to speak. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I kind of want to start asking more like specific questions like that on the podcast, like recommend not necessarily recommendations, but just, you know, what are people using? So cool. Yeah. So let me go back a second to go to the beginning of your of your journey here. You mentioned you, you bought those properties because you got an inheritance. Now, I'll, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to a fair amount of people where they come across a chunk of money, like whether it's, hey, I just got this big windfall from work, I got a bonus, I got an inheritance from a grandpa or grandma or mom or dad, and now I want to go invest. Now, I see a lot of people, they end up just blowing that money, and some people end up using it wisely in real estate. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk to that for a minute about how should people, when they, when they get that chunk of money, what should they do? I mean, like, just go out and buy a piece of property. I mean, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? Can you speak to that? Yeah. One mistake I made was I and I also inherited my mother's retirement account. So it's called an inherited IRA. And I talked to an attorney about it. And basically, I think she had 60000 in the account. So I inherited 60000 Because it's inherited, I could withdraw the money whenever I wanted to and not pay a 10% pre-retirement withdrawal penalty, but I would still have to pay income tax on it. So I left the money in that IRA, but I I went out and flipped the house with it. Now I leveraged the flip, so I put down, you know, 20% and borrowed the, the remaining money. And what I found out from my tax professional later on, which I should have checked first, is that because I leveraged the money in the IRA, there is a rule, a rule called UFDI, which is unrealized financed debt income. And if you're doing it in an IRA, then you have to pay a tax on any of the leveraged portion. So essentially, my profit from that flip was taxed. Eighty percent of my profit was taxed because I leveraged eighty percent. I had to pay thirty nine percent tax on that profit before I even took it out as income. Then I had, if I took it out as income, I had to pay whatever my standard tax rate was. So I shot myself in two feet at the same time with that. So my recommendation is if you're going to take inherited money or if you're gonna take money from an IRA like that, make sure you talk to a tax professional before you buy the property to make sure that you don't get a double taxed in a circumstance like that. Wow. You know, I think that inheriting money and buying assets, I mean, it could be anything that you're good at. We, we, we went into real estate, we went into rentals, and I started doing flips with it. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Interesting. That, that's crazy. I'd never heard of the UFDI. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
And it's fascinating that they can screw you and, and the double, pretty much double tax you on that, that money. It's uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, there, there's so, a rationale for that, but it's it's a long story. I'm not going to get into it. So. No, for sure. For sure. All right. So, and I know you had more story that you wanted to get into. I think Brandon and I still have a, a, a few more houses. You got the fourplex, you got the twoplex, you've done these 25 homes. Uh, you've got this Roth IRA that we're, we're talking about. You said you had picked up some turnkey properties down in Memphis. How did you go about finding, why a turnkey company? Right. How did you end up finding a company, because there's a lot of them, that you wanted to work with? And, and what can people do to vet companies like that? That'd be helpful start. Sure. Well, the way I got turned on to turnkey was I attend, I, I was uh, at the time my IRA was with Equity Trust and they were doing webinars with different vendors and so forth for their for their clients. So I got on a turnkey webinar with uh, on Memphis and it was Memphis Invest was doing conducting the webinar with the uh, equity trust person. And they just basically discussed the market and how it's a great rental market and all this great stuff. And so I then went on and being a research guy, because I'm pretty good at research, my job back in tech was doing product planning and research. So I was able to kind of confirm what their claims were on the market. And at the time, I, I was assembling the LLC with the other family member consolidating our, our IRA money. So I called my, and it was my cousin who lives in Ohio, and I called my cousin. I said, look, we should check into Memphis. Um, he was he was going to go buy some Florida properties at the time, and he was didn't know quite what he was doing per se. So I said, why don't why, why don't we look at Memphis? So we I flew to Memphis. He flew down. We met there. I got a hold of um, the folks over at um, Memphis Invest. They took us on a tour, showed us the properties, got us to you know showed us the neighborhoods and so forth. And then we also met with another turnkey, a much smaller turnkey provider, two guys who were basically buying homes at the auction, fixing them up, and then reselling them to out-of-town investors like myself. So we ended up hooking up with the smaller company because they had lower margins, better price, and so forth. We and we looked at one house there, and, and also basically on the due diligence side, um, well, let me just finish that that thought. So we ended up buying that this one house they showed us, and then I worked remotely with them on the rehab. Um, they'd send photos and walk through videos as they made progress. And we ended up, uh, I ended up hooking up with a very good property manager in Memphis, Lubin Property Management. Uh, they have experience with Section 8, heavy experience with Section 8 and the Memphis Housing Authority. They've been around for 10 years, so I knew they had a lot of experience. And what I ended up doing over the course of about six months is we bought three more properties uh, remotely, I would just be sent photos and a video by the same company, and then I would have Ryan Lubin or one of his staff go out and and just cross check the reality of the situation. You know, you always want to when you're working remotely like that. If you're not going to fly out there every month, which gets expensive and it's not needed, is having a third party there to validate whatever your turnkey provider is yeah. telling you and so forth. So because you know, there's I've heard stories from other investors where they've invested in a turnkey property and it ended up the videos and the photos they got were not of their property. So yep. there's could be some deception. 
So can, um, so, I, can I ask a quick question on this? So I know some turn, a lot of turnkey companies provide, you know, I have different ways of operating. And for those people who are not familiar with turnkey, just to throw out, basically there's these companies that buy properties or that do everything for you in a way that you, you know, you buy them, but they fix them up, they manage them, they put a tenant in there, they do all that stuff. Uh, but anyway, I know some companies will actually buy the property themselves, fix it up and then sell it almost like they're flipping it. Um, another one's like, it sounds like the one you're working with here. You actually buy the property in the bad condition and then you work with them to fix it up. Is that, is that correct? No, they, they actually bought it and okay. then they, I bought it from them after it was, it was done, but okay. I would sign a contract that I intend to buy it for this price after it's finished. Oh, okay. That's cool. I, I've not actually heard that exact model. But no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Um, okay. I, I would buy it. They would take title, but I would buy it as is and then pay them their fee to do the flipping, to do the rehab work. Okay. So I, I owned it at the time in bad condition, but I had a contract that they would complete the work to certain specifications. Okay. Got okay. It. Cool. All right. So, so overall, I mean, how, how has the turnkey thing been for you? I mean, do you recommend other people try that if they live in an area maybe that's too expensive to invest in uh, or would, you know, was that a good experience? Or more hands off, right? They, you know, they just yeah. don't have the time to find it. Right. I, I, I strongly recommend it. Obviously, with with caution and doing your due diligence. But I live in the Seattle market, and now it's crazy here, of course. But yeah. even back then, it, it was hard to find properties that would cash flow very well. Or, you know, I mean, you could find them, but Memphis offered so much more margin on cash flow and such a good market in terms of the demographics there and the rentability of properties that to me, it was a no brainer. A lot of investors, especially newbies, kind of get in that my backyard attitude. If, it, if I can't drive to it, I don't want to buy it. And I understand that it's an it's an emotional issue. But if you get comfortable, especially with the Internet and and cell phones, I mean, there's so much communication now that you can remotely manage things so easily if you pick the right vendors remotely and do your due diligence and research. Got very it. cool, very Got cool. It. And, and w- one last tip to throw in there that I recommend people do, and you kind of touched uh, quickly on this, is you know do your own due diligence. And that means even the numbers. Like I always recommend, turnkey can be fine, but I never trust, even though I, I, I have some turnkey companies I love, but I would never trust anybody to do my numbers, even if they were my best friend in the world. Do your own math, do your own numbers, don't rely on somebody else's, do your own research, your own due diligence. And, uh, you know, again, don't let somebody else, uh, you know, tell you what's a good deal. Good advice. Exactly, exactly. Good advice. All right, cool. So um, I know I know that there's, there's more that you wanted to get into. So, you know, we usually will dive in on the first deals, but, you know, you, you had talked about the fourplex, the twoplex, but... I know there's more interesting stuff and that, that we haven't covered that Brandon and I both want to get into more details about. So what what happened there? So you've got these turnkeys, you've started flipping, and then where did the career path take you? Okay. So we, we own these four cash flowing rentals in Memphis in our IRA. So we're getting the money in tax-free essentially. And and the other beauty of that was we leveraged all of those, okay, which would maybe incur UDFI. So the way we leveraged it, when you buy um, properties in your IRA, they have to be non-recourse loans. And only really two banks in the country do non-recourse lending. They're basically asset-based lending, almost like hard money, but at a lower rate. And I could have gone with the uh, non-recourse lenders, but we ended up tapping into another family member. And his IRA loaned our IRA LLC the 70% financing at I think 7% interest. 
So we only put down 30% of our money on those four properties. So we're able to spread our, 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 our down payments across those properties. So he made income in his IRA. We made income in IRA. So everybody's making tax-free income across the board, which was just, to me, just beautiful, you know. And because these were rentals, my cousin, who was also the vice president of a fairly large company, uh, uh, chief financial officer, he he took care of the book. So he was able to basically use depreci- depreciation within the IRA to offset the UDFI tax we might have to pay. So it really worked out well. Um, so end- we ended up buying those. We, we bought a turnkey townhome in uh, San Antonio, Texas, a builder had built a duplex and fourplex modules in northwest San Antonio. And at the time, he couldn't sell them fast enough to keep up his debt service on all the loans he had. So a a realtor, I got on another webinar, and a realtor was basically helping this guy sell these properties to investors. And the deal was, which was great, is the builder would be the property manager for two years, charge no property management fee, take care of all the you know property management uh, uh, work, and guarantee us an eleven hundred dollar a month income on um, that. We just bought one townhome in a, in a duplex building, so that worked out great. What we found out though is, at the end of two years, again a turnkey story. Um, he'd be a little late once in a while with his rents, and we didn't. Um, ask him for leases or anything. We just, if we got rent from him, we assumed he had a tenant in there. Well, at the end of two years, we decided to go with a professional property management company because this, this, our contract with this builder was over. And uh, we found out that uh, when I, when we hired Boardwalk Property Management, they went over to take pictures and meet the tenant. Well, they called, they called me and said, um, there is no tenant in the, in the, in the <laughs> property. And they took a picture through the missing deadbolt into the living room, and there was office furniture, construction equipment. Basically, this builder had used the property as storage for two years and paid us $1,100 a month rent, (laughs) which was crazy. Yeah. But there was no water meter installed. There was no electric meter. I mean, it was – and there was – the kitchen was unfinished. There was cabinets, I think. So, I mean, we were like, oh, my God. This guy, if this guy backs out on us, we're going to have to spend ten, twenty thousand dollars for me to get this property in rentable shape. So I um, contacted an attorney and basically started working with the builder I, via email mostly, and also went back to the broker who hooked us up and said, "Hey, you promised us in your literature that we would have a turnkey property." So I I put his feet to the fire as well, and fortunately he was able to work with the builder, convince him to finish the the rehab, and within two months they had it re, they had it, the build out completed and it was rent ready, and we've owned it now for. I don't know, four years after that, and it's wow. cash flowing great. So that's crazy. One of those really kind of, oh my God, what did we do um, stories? And it, it, it through using the right resources, legal resources, and also keeping all the literature that I had from the beginning and, and making sure all my documentation and ducks were in a row, I was able to facilitate cooperation. That's great tips. First off, it's funny, as you were saying it, I, I wrote a note to Brandon. I'm like, sounds shady to me when you're talking about the guaranteed $1,100 a month income. You know, nothing is nothing in the world is guaranteed. As, as It's always a red flag for me when you hear guaranteed. It happens, but, you know, always always be 
aware, I would say, to anyone listening if, uh, of situations like that, particularly when you're buying something sight unseen and you don't have the capacity to do your own diligence on it, right? I mean, you had no idea. You're getting all this money. It sounds great, but you had no clue because you know you weren't there, you weren't seeing it. So it's just something, especially for for somebody who's new, to kind of keep an eye and ear out for. Uh, just be careful. Do, do you have any advice beyond that that you might want to give people uh, to to avoid situations like that? Well, obviously, make sure there's a, a, a very good contract in place, and that's one thing we did make sure that we at least had an enforceable document with the with the builder to if we if worse came, you know, if it got to worse and the stuff really hit the fan, then we we would at least have a, a contract that's enforceable that our attorney could use. But at that point, you would be into a lot of deep pocket expenses for legal fees, and it would become a lose lose situation. So, but yeah, having a good a good solid contract and making sure you keep all those contracts available for future reference. Assume nothing. My father used to say, assume nothing and document everything is basically the way I, you know, yeah. live my life, so to speak. That's great. Um, yeah. And, um, and in the Memphis market, you know, and again, having a third party in that Memphis market, having the property manager there to validate and check on the progress of those turnkey recon- uh, renovations was definitely something I would recommend. You don't want to yeah. just trust that one person, you know, even if it's your brother, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I, lo- sure. I love sure. that tip about it. if you're buying at a distance, like get a third party. I think that it's super, super, yeah. super important. A trusted third party. A trusted third party. Exactly. A trusted third party. Very so cool. you got to vet the third party, <laughs> which is oftentimes <laughs> the challenge. Well, so Bob, I, I know that you began to get into notes at some point. I'd love to hear that transition and get some more details on on that part of your story. Okay. Well, what uh, about four years ago? I belong to the Seattle RIA Group Reaps, and about six years ago, they brought in Eddie Speed, who runs Note School. And Eddie was talking about notes and buying notes, and I was in deep, knee deep in the flips and buying properties and rentals. And I scratched my head and said, "This note stuff doesn't make sense." And I left early, went home. You know, ah, this, 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 <laughs> this is too weird. It's a black box. So about two years after that, which would have been about four years ago, I started looking at notes at paper. I actually ended up one of my real estate agents in Gig Harbor, which is near Seattle. uh, She buys mobile homes and she buys land and then puts the mobile on there and rents it out and has a good little business model going. And she found a note for sale on a mobile home um, in an area called Sammamish, which is uh, east of Seattle in a good area. And the couple had bought their mobile home for cash. They 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 wanted to retire to Arizona, so they sold it on a note to another couple. And then they they got some financial issues going, basically a bankruptcy. So they wanted to sell the note before they filed bankruptcy. And the note's value was about fourteen thousand five hundred. I was able to negotiate it to a seven thousand dollar purchase. It had a low rate, only four percent interest. But bottom line, we the, the cash flow on it pro- provided us, and this is in our IRA again. We bought it in the same IRA that owns the Memphis properties, the LLC. Uh, it ended up yielding us about a forty percent a year cash on cash ROI, and I went, "Wow, this is amazing!" So I started really digging deep into notes. Went to a few conferences, got on Bigger Pockets, where I learned a lot in the tax lien and note uh, forum. I went in with all the stupid questions and there were more advanced note buyers there giving me advice and information and so forth. So it was really, really a great process for me to go through and learn quickly. 
I ended up buying, we, we ended up, long, long story short, we ended up selling our Memphis uh, rentals. Two of them we sold for cash and two we took notes back on to other investors. So we owned, we owned uh, two notes in Memphis on the, on the houses uh, from the investors and one investor used their self-directed IRA to buy the house and we put a note out to them and so forth and so on. And then we took the cash from the sale of those other two properties and started buying distressed debt. I ended up buying uh, nine notes in our LLC of distressed debt, uh, and it, mostly in the southeast in Charlotte, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Memphis, and South Carolina. And these were now this was distressed debt. Yeah. What does that What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So this is these are non-performing notes. So you, you you can buy. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to buy notes. You can buy a performing loan where it's it's somebody maybe did a seller carry back and they want to sell that that debt to somebody else and cash it out. Kind of like but that first buy, like that first deal you did that was a performing. Right, I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But and performing buy, means they're being paid. They're right? paid. I mean, yeah. that means the, the that means they're paying. It's you're just basically buying future payments a cash flow stream. Okay. okay. Yep. Non-performing notes, that's usually institutional debt like B of A or Chase uh, put a, provided a loan to a, to a buyer, a borrower, uh, 10 years ago, and the borrower defaulted at some point, and, and the bank has been sitting on that debt, not collecting any money. It's called an extremely delinquent loan, over 90 days past due. And, and because of the 2008 housing bubble, there was this mountain of of unpaid debt, um, basically those toxic assets that we've all heard about. And in a presentation I do, if you've, if you've seen the movie The Big Short or read the book, that's exactly the, the source of where all this, this inventory comes from. So basically, I can buy a debt on a house, let's say in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the borrower stopped paying two years ago. The bank will sell that debt. I don't actually buy it from the bank. I buy it through kind of a waterfall of hedge funds. But essentially, I can buy that debt for 30 to 50 cents on the dollar of the BPO value of the house. So my equity is covered. So if I have to foreclose at some point, I'm going to get my money back and probably make a pretty good profit. Can you give... Can you give us quick, just like a, a scenario or an example of like what, because like, you said a lot of stuff that people might not know, like BPO value of the house, BPO. 30 cents on the, on the dollar. So give us an example of what that might look like on a property. Okay. So we bought a, a note last year in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a, a three bedroom house, nice neighbor, decent neighborhood, you know, older ranch style home. The value, the, the broker price opinion, BPO value of the house was about $60,000, $65,000 as is, not improved. It was, it was occupied by a single mother who drives a bus for the Charlotte school system. She's been employed for 11 years. She's been in the house 11 years. The, so the value of the house was about 60000 65000 The debt on that house, the note, the amount she owed, which is called the unpaid principal balance, was also about $62,000. So so the debt was par with the value of the house. Mm -hmm. Most of the notes we buy, the debt is much higher, the house is underwater, that kind of thing. So... That, so that's okay. As long as we buy it for par or, or, or a higher balance, we're, we're safe. But anyway, long story short, um, we contact. She stopped paying on it two years ago. She had some financial issues. Her daughter moved out who was helping her pay her debt service on the note and so forth. Uh, but she was fully employed, which is great. And that's part of our due diligence on a note. We look for the ability for them to start repayment on their debt. So we reached out to her. 
one thing that we found in doing this is that you know these borrowers are typically working with their their bank or an old bank or maybe another bank bought it, and banks aren't exactly the warmest and fuzziest people to talk to. No, so when we on. contact them and <laughs> we say, "Hey, we're not a bank. We're here to help you. We'd like to keep you in their your house," they kind of go, "Wow, okay, I'm I'm down for this." So long story short, she ended up. We had her fill out a financial statement so we could gauge how much she could afford because we want to make sure she's successfully staying in that house and paying us a mortgage payment. So we got her to complete a financial statement, looked at all of her, her debt and income, and pretty much figured out she could afford about three fifty a month on a new payment. Um, so we're able, because we're buying paper, buying a note, we're able to change the balance of the note. We're able to change the term, the length of the, of the, of the mortgage debt as well as the APR. I think she took out a high interest loan. It might've been 11% or so at, at the beginning and her payments were like $500 a month, which is what she defaulted on. So we ended up saying, okay, listen, we can do a loan mod for you. We can modify your current loan. We'll reamortize that $62,000 over a new 30 year period. We'll, we'll set it down to 6% interest which will get your basically your P&I payment, your principal and interest payment down to three, I think it was, I wrote some notes here, 360 a month or so. So that made it affordable for her. Now, she also owed almost $11,000 in arrears. And arrears are basically, when she stopped paying her mortgage, Those that's the unpaid interest as well as penalties per the mortgage that she, the, the 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 note that she signed when she bought the house, so she had these arrearages, and we have the ability as the bank, so to speak, or as the lender now, to either forgive those arrearages, add them to her note note balance, or ask her to pay that that arrearages. And what I found out is if you don't ask the borrower to to, to pay some a, a chunk in the front end they're probably going to redefault later on because they don't have any skin in the game, so to mm-hmm. speak. Okay. So we said, look, if you pay the $11,000 arrearages, we'll do your loan mod and reduce your payment, keep you in your house, all that good stuff. Now, we bought that note for $29,000 cash. Wow. Okay. So we bought a $62,000 debt for $29,000. We had her pay 11000 in arrearages. So that brought our cost basis down to $18,000. And on that 360 some dollar a month payment, which mostly is interest because it's at the front end of a new of a new amortization, we were getting about a 22 percent return on our money for that note, which is great. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. And you don't um, have to deal with repairs and maintenance and stuff because oh, it's her property. Yeah. You're just a bank. I mean, yeah, my standing joke is I as a landlord, I have a fantasy that my tenants would just leave me alone and send me money. And I realized <laughs> those are called borrowers. Right. Yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> You want to be a bank. You don't want to be a landlord. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So we, we can, we can own the paper on it and, and have access to the property through foreclosure or a deed in lieu where they hand, they they would sign over the deed, but we don't have to deal with the insurance, the maintenance, the vacancies, all the things that owning a rental uh, require of you, you know? So to me, it was like I was in hog heaven. So on that note, we collected principal and interest payments for 12 months. That's called seasoning. You want to season the note with consistent payments. Now I can sell that loan as a seasoned loan, a cash flowing loan to another investor who wants to buy those future payments for a specific sum of money. I ended up selling it last month for uh, 46000 and some change. 
So bottom line, we collected, I just made some notes here, we collected about 32, well, with, with the profit on the sale, we ended up, uh, our, our net income was 32360 on a $29,000 purchase. So we made 111% profit on our on our investment <laughs> over a 12-month period. That's awesome. And we, I never period. even had to go look at the house. I mean, so for me, notes, that example is a, is a small home run. It basically portrays how you can invest in an asset without having to deal with all the liability in that asset like you would as a, as a homeowner, as a landlord. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. I, I hope anybody listening, I, I don't think I've heard distressed notes explained as well as you just did. That was a fantastic example. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we hosted on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Pretty good little episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters, and landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with the digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. So what is what is the risk with notes? And then how would somebody go about finding opportunities like this? Okay. The risks are relatively low compared to property ownership, for instance. But what when you buy a note, you're doing your due diligence in kind of three sectors I look at it. Basically, you're doing your due diligence on the property itself. So is the home in, an, in a stable market? Will it appreciate over time? You know, what's the crime rate? The usual stuff you would do when you're buying a flip or buying a rental, you do that due diligence. Then you need to do your due diligence on the borrower. Um, and when you're 
looking to buy the note, that can be limited because you're not the lender. You can't just call the borrower and say, hey, are you working now? So you need to go through the servicing notes, talk to the current owner of the note if possible, and find out what the – first of all, is the, is the property occupied by the borrower? Did they, did they vacate it and is it a zombie property now? And we don't buy zombies. We buy – Borrower-occupied properties, our, our business model is to keep them in their homes. Uh, some note investors buy vacant properties, they foreclose, and they rent them out or they flip them. There's all different models. But ours is to keep borrowers in their homes. So we have to do diligence on the borrower, try to find out what their employment status is and so forth before we buy the note. And then after we buy the note, of course, as the lender, we can now start working directly with them. And then the main thing, though, is doing the due diligence on the paper itself, what we call the collateral files. And that's the deed of trust or mortgage. That's the note. That's the um, lenders. Ins- make sure lenders insurance policy was generated, looking at the payment history uh, on the note or lack thereof. So they're going through that and chain of title is the most important part. And what happens when when a note is sold, there has to be a clear chain of title from the time it went from the originator. Let's say Bank of America generates, uh, creates a note, they originate a loan to Joe Schmo down the street. They've got that paper now. Now they're going to sell that note maybe to another bank and they have to do what's called an assignment. And the assignment is a one-page legal language, and that assignment says, "I'm assigning your rights to collect on this note to to you, uh, Bank of you know uh, any town USA." And that assignment is then recorded, and that basically is any town USA's any town bank's right to collect, and it's recorded publicly. Anytime a loan is sold, an assignment is done, and those have to be recorded, and there has to be a clear chain, and you have to make sure you have the original assignments sent to you once you buy the loan. If you don't have those assignments, the liability is that the borrower can challenge the loan, take you to court, and their attorney can say, hey, there's a missing assignment, so uh, judge, we'd like that this lender to forgive this loan and go away. And that's happened. So you you know, doing your due diligence in the front end on a loan is really the most important part to make sure all the I's are, I's are dotted and T's are crossed, so to speak. And that takes Due diligence takes reading boring, boring documents and going through mortgage statements and doing research. Because of the banking industry, there's a lot of third-party services available. So I can order a title report, what's called an ownership and encumbrances report, which basically gives me the borrower's name, any debt that's on it, any subordinate debt, any liens. So I can kind of get a picture before I buy the note of what the subordinate liens are. Did they take a HELOC out? Do they have a lien from uh, a car company where they defaulted on the loan? So we look at the liens. Even though we're in first position when we buy the note, we want to know what our liability is if we have to foreclose. We order a BPO, a broker price opinion, so we can get a current value on it. If there's already a BPO, maybe it's six months old from the seller of the note, uh, I might still go out and hire uh, wegolook.com. And for, I think, 60 or 70 bucks, they'll send somebody out to walk around, take pictures, make comments on the property. So there's there's all these third-party services available for me sitting in my home office in Kingston, Washington, to validate the integrity of the asset, the borrower, and the note. Once we go through that process, so when you look at that, that's the high part of the bell curve of, of buying it. 
Then you do your your loan mod, your workout, you start collecting your cash flow. In theory, once the borrower starts paying, then you've got cash flow coming in. We hire a servicing company to collect the payments, do all the statements, do all the tax statements and all that. So the servicing company takes out $15 a month for their fees. They send us the net via ACH. I get an email saying, you know, your payment of $364 has come in. And every month I get those emails, those are the greatest things to me. Sure. The, the risks down the road are that the borrower may read defaults either in, you know, uh, intentionally or through they lose their job, they get sick. And so you have to then restart that process with the borrower. Okay, what's going on? What can we do to get you back on track? So it's a bit of social engineering and negotiations at that point. I just had a borrower on a, another house in Charlotte who started missing his payments last year. He got six months behind. And that note was a huge home run. We already got our capital back in the first year. So this was pure cash flow. But, you know, he stopped missing his payments. And so I had the servicer reach out. He got laid off. He's reemployed. But he started, he got to the point where he owed us in missed interest and arrearages about $4,000. At the beginning of that, when we bought that loan, we had the borrower pay off $10,000 towards his arrearages. So he had he had skin in the game. And the fact that he started losing, started missing his payments was a surprise. But, you know, that happens. So what we ended up doing is we filed for foreclosure. We filed a notice of default. And so he got in a letter from an attorney saying, we're going to for, foreclose on you unless you get current. And that shook him up enough to contact our servicer. We were negotiating a pay down now. He just he just wired in $2,600 towards what he owes. He's going to wire in two more payments in uh, February and March to get back on track. So, you know, it, it's not smooth sailing guaranteed down the road, but we try to ensure as much as possible that we do get the debt service payments and we can do a compassionate workout with those borrowers if they do, do run into trouble again. Cool. Hey, Bob, so no. – how do I find these notes? You know, I decide, hey, I oh, want yeah. to do this. This sounds great. What, what do I need to do to get out there and, and find okay. stuff like this? Well, you, and, and also I, I, I want to preface that by saying what we buy are mainly institutional notes. So these, this is paper generated by the big five, Bank of America, Chase, Deutsche Bank, those kinds of guys. Um, you can buy seller carryback notes where somebody owns their house outright and they just want to sell it. They can take back a note. Now they want to sell that note. We don't buy those mainly because we don't know who wrote the note, what legal service did it, how much integrity it has. So we want to buy institutional paper that was written by a team of lawyers, has a lot of teeth in it. And it's also that's very standard. All the notes are very standardized. All the mortgages are very standardized based on the lending laws. So to find them, you can't just call Bank of America and say, I'd like to buy a note or two from you. They they don't do that. They sell their notes in pools of $100, $200 million to big hedge funds. There's a, a basically a waterfall that happens. So a hedge fund will buy a big pool. They're going to take what they want out of that pool and start reworking it. And those are going to probably be the higher equity notes, maybe in, in Seattle and L.A. and New York and Miami. And they're going to sell whatever they don't feel is worthwhile chasing down to a smaller hedge fund. And that smaller hedge fund will do the same thing. They'll pick what they want and then sell it off to people like my company or me directly. And what we get are basically, I call them table scraps. Okay, we're not getting the waterfront Miami property. We're getting the house in Charlotte that's got a value under $100,000. And so there's a niche there that the sub $120,000 valued houses 
are too low of a value for banks and even larger hedge funds to process because the foreclosure cost for like a bank is twenty-five dollars to $30,000 for them to foreclose, hold it as an REO and liquidate it. So on these lower balance loans, it's just not worth it. They'd rather sell it off, take the loss on their books and so forth. So we specialize basically in sub $120,000 homes. And so what we do is we, we I create uh, relationships with these small hedge fund managers. I go to conferences. I get on bigger pockets. I get on FCI Exchange. FCI is our servicer, but they have a online, like an eBay for notes kind of thing. So I get on there and buy notes from other sellers. A lot of the stuff there is real bottom of the barrel. You have to do a lot of preliminary due diligence. So basically, it's creating relationships with other people who are in the note business. And it's a very, very small industry, less than probably 2,000 note buyers in the U.S. So, you know, people help each other out. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's not that competition because there's a lot of notes. There's, I went to a conference last summer and some of the larger fund managers were there and the panel discussion, they asked them, what is the landscape of the extremely delinquent note inventory right now? And everybody pretty much agreed it's over $300 billion of notes are still waiting to be sold off into the secondary market. That's a lot yeah. of notes, okay? Yeah. The consensus was probably a five to seven year period window of those. So basically what happened is those toxic assets, the bulk of those have been sold off already, but just the tail is still $300 billion, which fascinates me. Yeah. So basically developing relationships. And which is, wow. you know, which is both good and bad, right? It means that like not everyone can just go do it. Like, you know, anybody can go buy an REO that's for sale, you know, by the local real estate agent, uh, you know, but if you're somebody who wants to get into this, I mean, build relationships, go to those conferences, meet people, talk. I mean, I, I just think that's cool at the same time, because that means there's less competition. So those willing to exactly. work, get it. Cool. Yeah. And and the fact that we're working with paper and not the house to me is just such a, a higher reward. And we're helping somebody stay in their house too. You know, yeah. um, we we haven't had to foreclose on any property yet. We've been able to do loan modifications. The only local property I, I we, that we bought a note on this past year was down in Puyallup, Washington, south of Seattle, and we ended up. It was a privately generated note. And the the person who owned the owned the note and loaned the money, her husband passed away, and she just wanted to get out from under it and move on with her life. And then during the term that she held that note, the borrowers defaulted three times, and her husband had renegotiated the note, lowered their interest rate, added their arrearages to the back end. A hundred ninety thousand dollar note went up to two hundred ten thousand dollars after the third mod. We bought the note for a hundred and well, we. We had all in. We had about one hundred thirty-six thousand. We bought it for one hundred and twenty-six, and we had about ten thousand in legal fees. We immediately filed foreclosure last year because we did not want to modify again those borrowers. Three strikes and you're out. Yeah. We ended up. They ended up putting it up for sale last summer at a very high price. The, the property was worth about two ten to two forty. So we knew our equity is covered in that. They put it up for sale for two seventy five. I got on my Redfin subscription, tagged it as a favorite, watched it drop every month. They finally got an offer of two forty in late August and submitted that to us as a short sale. And we you know, when you're when you're dealing with debt, you want to make sure that it's not a straw man buyer, that their cousin Vinny isn't putting a contract in and yeah. they're just trying to stall the foreclosure because we the foreclosure was due like in September. So anyway, we validated the borrower. We talked to the mortgage broker that the borrower, the buyer was going to be using and validated that everything was above board and arm's length. 
And so we, we, we postponed the foreclosure until January of this year, just in case the deal didn't go through. We still had the foreclosure there. But we didn't want to foreclose. I mean, we don't want to kick people out of their houses. So yeah. long story short, they ended up selling the property on a short sale. They closed on December like 23rd. And we got a check for we, we settled for it. We agreed to waive the arrearages, which would have been about a total of two hundred and thirty seven thousand. We took a check for two hundred and eleven thousand dollars. And so we had a hundred and thirty six thousand dollar investment. We got a two hundred eleven thousand dollar check. And I Ooh. basically invested maybe nine hours into phone calls and meeting with attorneys. Wow, that's awesome. Sounds awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think notes are, are fascinating because I, I too, like I, I've worried about notes in the past and that I don't want to kick people out of the house. I don't want to buy a bunch of notes from people that are, you know, deadbeats and then end up just kicking them all out and feeling bad that I had to kick out these people at Christmas time, you know, take their Thanksgiving dinner off the table, right? You know, like, like all the, like the, yeah. the fear that comes up with that. So I like that you're, you know, you approach it from this. I want to help people. I want to go in here and I want to buy good, you know, good paper that, that shouldn't have to happen. Uh, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that it doesn't. I think it's very, very cool, very admirable. So cool. Uh, last question before we move on to the fire round. I'm wondering, like, where do you see yourself? Where, where are you moving in the future? What's the next five, 10 years look like for you? Uh, actually, I have that question. Then I do have one more question as well, but let's go with that okay. one first. Okay. Um, for me, um, it's notes, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm At some point, whenever my rentals reach the point where they're not underwater anymore, I'll probably sell them. Right now, they're cash flowing nicely, and I have property management running them for me, so they're, they're minimal as far as my time. But I really want to stay in notes and build up a note, note portfolio that will provide my wife and I passive income to where we can move, you know, maybe spend six months a year in Europe or travel and not have to be hands-on here in my local area working on a flip, for instance. So, sure. so that's really our goal. And um, I've partnered with two other note, note investors and we created a company, Resolution Capital. And what we've done is we've, it's a Reg D 506 uh, equity fund. We're raising larger amounts of capital to buy larger pools of notes so that our investors will get a good return on their money. And then we'll make we do a profit split with them to do, get a return. And I'm looking at building up that business model to create passive income from that operation as well. That sounds right. awesome. I love it. All right. So last question I had, I was going to bring it up a long time ago, but just, so this is definitely not going to fit in the flow of our conversation, but uh, I'm curious. So when you talk about investing in the IRA, whether it's notes or whether it's rentals or whatever, and let's say you're doing the Roth IRA where you pay the tax up front, but you don't have to pay it later on when you retire. Does that mean both the cash flow and like any profit you make from the property equity? I mean, you don't get anything until retirement. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. What, I mean, you can, okay. you, you can withdraw it early, but pay, you're going to pay a 10% fee on that money, even though it's tax-free coming out, you're still going to pay a penalty for early withdrawal. Okay. Okay, cool. I'm just was curious Perfect. about how that goes. So, all right, let's, move, let's shift uh, over to the world-famous fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, let's get to this thing. Fire on question number one. And these come out of the Bigger Pockets forums, which I know, uh, Bob, you are, uh, you know, you're familiar with the forums. So uh, let's see if you've come across these questions. Uh, number one, in three words, this is kind of just a fun question. I like this. Uh, probably the most popular forum post of the, of the month. In three words or less, well, in three words, perfectly three words. Describe your 2017 real estate goals in three words. Uh, cash flow, cash flow and cash flow. <laughs> Six words, but you know, it's all good. Cash flow could be one word, depending on how you, you know, whether you hyphenate it, whether you make it one word or two. Take out the conjunctions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. Cool. 
All right. Next question. I'm considering becoming a financial partner for house flipping. I'll be investing at a diff- distance. So vetting someone's extremely important. How should I go about finding a, a good flipper to partner with? Wow. I would uh, look for track record references. Who have they done business with before? And um, possibly also talk to some of their lenders that they've dealt with on their ability to repay on the flip. And then uh, obviously look at a portfolio of properties that they've done work on, possibly speak to the real estate agent or whoever helped facilitate the sale of their properties. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. It's actually something I was, I've was i been meaning to write. It's been on my list of blog posts to write about how to become a private lender, but someday I'll write that. All right. Uh, number three, I'm a, well, uh, I am not, but Wait, this I am is a, a great question. <laughs> I am a 23 year old female investor. Uh, I am, and I just bought my first duplex. So first of all, congratulations to whoever wrote this question in the forums. Yes, you rock! Uh, but I just bought my first duplex. However, I inherited a terrible tenant who smokes in the property, doesn't pay rent, and I don't know what to do. Any advice? Wow. Well, first of all, that stresses the importance of screening your tenants prior to getting them in the rental, which I've had my share of bad tenants and regret that. So while they haven't done anything to violate their lease or do anything illegal, it's difficult to do much about that other than to try to negotiate with them to be a better tenant, I think. And they um, also didn't pay rent. So, yeah, you know, well, okay. if they, if they, if they didn't, didn't pay, pay rent, then obviously you can, you can eventually evict them. And sure. that's going to, depending on the state that your property is located, it could take a few months or a few years, who knows? But uh, yeah, I think eviction really, other than negotiating with them, eviction is probably your only recourse. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And yeah, no, that's fine. All right. La- last question of the fire round. Any tips on identifying and appreciating markets? Tough one. Yeah, it's, I think reading reports, there's a, quite a few, like Realty Track puts out a monthly newsletter. There's a couple other reports and annual reports that you can get for free online that talk about the different markets, the MSAs out there, where they're headed. So that's that's a real that's a real estate report oriented research. But again, looking at where, you know, getting on a Google news feed on let's say you're you want to look at a certain market and getting that Google news feed so you get information in your inbox every morning as to what's going on. Is that market do they have new employment? Or, you know, for instance, uh, Oklahoma, they're suffering from the energy crisis because of the oil prices. So, you know, looking at the macroeconomics of an area and soliciting information through various feeds and getting on your Internet research really is the, is the way to kind of figure that out, I guess. Cool. All right. Cool. All right. Let's head over to the last section of the show, which we lovingly refer to as our famous four. All right, question number one of the famous four, and these are the same questions we ask every guest every week. Number one, what is your favorite real estate-related book? My favorite book was Equity Happens by Robert Helms and uh, Russell Gray. I think it's out of print, but it was just a really good basic book that painted a picture. It it was a parable about one guy who was a blue-collar worker and one guy who was a big executive and how they dealt with their their rental properties and the, the the obviously the blue collar worker ended up making the most money and being the most conservative and it's a just a very good eye opener. Um, my other books would be Bridge Dad Poor Dad. The whole Kiyosaki set of books are just very enlightening. I think Robert, even though he's got an interesting personality, he's got a lot to say that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Excellent. 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 What about business books? Business books. One is The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. 
And the other one is, uh, I've just read it for the second time. It's an older book, but it's called The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Ecker. And Ecker basically talks about your mindset for being an investor versus being an employee, being a poor, you know, how poor people think versus how rich people think. And it's a really nice, and he doesn't try to upsell you too much to his programs, which is even nicer. <laughs> That's always Excellent. a good thing. Excellent. Excellent. What do you do for fun? What outside of buying notes and building this little empire of yours? You know, being self-employed, it's a 50 hour work week, so to speak. But uh, my wife and I like to go to movies. Uh, we We love to travel. We love to go to Europe. And I love to listen to music. I'm a reformed audio audiophile, so I like just listening to stereo music and downloading music. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, we love pets. Our dog just passed away, but we'll probably get another one. And um, so basically travel, that. music, and you know, movies, media. All right. Excellent. All right. What's your favorite European city? Paris. Uh, well, my wife likes Paris. I'm more into Barcelona and Madrid myself. Very cool. Very cool. All there right. My, my last question of the day. What do you believe sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Well, I think willingness to take action. If you don't take action, you can't take a risk and you won't make mistakes. A lot of people are afraid to make mistakes. And as I'm sure a lot of interviewees have said, you learn from your mistakes. I've made my share of mistakes. Fortunately, I've been have the ingenuity to get myself out of them. <laughs> uh, you know, I've gotten close to the edge of the cliff and I've been able to, to get a parachute out and jump off with, with ease. But I think if you don't learn from your mistakes and grow from your actions and take action, uh, so many investors, especially newbies I see, are sitting there in that ana- the paralysis of analysis and they're afraid to, they just don't have self-confidence to move forward. And you've just got to, I mean, when we went to, to invest our money, we bought a fourplex. You know, we didn't start out with a single family home. I just dove in and said, I'm going to figure this out, you know. And same thing with notes. I just put myself in the situation. I learned as I went and I used enough cautionary procedures to not totally lose my ass on a deal. So Excellent. I love it. Excellent. I love it. It's fantastic. All right, Bob, before we let you go, where can people find out more about you? Where can they connect with you? I'm on Bigger Pockets. Uh, you can find me there. Or um, if you go to my website, which is rcm.company, www.rcm.company, which stands for Resolution Capital Management, or bob at rcm.company. If you want to email me, be happy to give you my religion on notes or help you out or whatever. There Excellent. Cool. Well, Bob, thank you so much for sharing. This has been great. Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, you're really good at explaining things. So uh, thank you for the time. We we really do appreciate it. And we'll see you around on the site. Okay. Thanks for uh, interviewing me and for letting me share what I have to say to your audience. It's been great. I love Bigger Pockets, another promo there, but I really, really do love Bigger Pockets. Thank you. Thanks for putting that together, you guys, and running it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. All right. Bob Malecki here on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Wow, that guy has done a lot. He has. And, uh, you know, a lot of his story is like, I want to kind of follow his similar path. You know, I've flipped houses, bought rentals, but I love that they're getting into notes. And I like, I just did my first note recently. It's kind of fun. I really like it. Yeah, I like it in that passive income. It's kind of cool. And I think I might, you know, end up doing more of that in my life. But, you know, anyway, very cool stuff. So, yeah, keep going, Bob. Keep doing it. Yeah, it's great. You know, finding, finding answers, finding solution to, to problems is, is what he does. And I think what a lot of real estate investors, do so it it's great you know again i i learn a lot from every show even if it's stuff that i already know uh, just figuring out different ways that people are going about doing things is is really cool so yeah, yeah. bob was great lo- lots of success to him going forward 
And yeah, your I mean your note investment you were telling me about yesterday is great. I mean, I yeah. love I love it. Sounds, yeah. sounds awesome. It is a lot of fun. I, you know, like I, I think my thinking with notes is this though. Like as much as I want to do them, I want to like it's more of a passive investment in that. And somebody's going to yell at me for saying this because it's not entirely true. But for the most part, I'm not going to go get into note investing if I have no money. Right? That's something I figure I do when I have a lot of extra money, and it's a good way to get turn my money that I have into passive income, right? But when you're just starting yeah. out, you have nothing. It's a lot, I like to say it's a lot more difficult to just be a note investor with no money, right? That's why most people don't start with that, but they end up there. A lot of investors end up there. Uh, it's just kind of the end game for a lot of investors is it's probably the most passive way to invest in uh, real estate, or at least one of the more passive ways. So yeah, cool yeah it's all good. It's all good. Cool. Well, yeah, that was great. Awesome. Awesome. How was your, uh, how was your snowboard trip? Oh my gosh, it was so good. I broke three arms actually. Oh <laughs> my goodness. That's amazing. In fact, you have not yet left. I've not yet trip. left. No, we are recording this outro. The, uh, Ooh. Same time, a little early, same time we recorded the last one, but uh, whatever, you know, it's going to be fun. So I'll tell everyone about it when I get back. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, Brandon, I will miss you. Yeah, you will. I know you'll call me every night. Cue violence. <laughs> okay. Let's get out of here. Have a great time. No, have a good. What's cracking? No, life, you know, it's all good, man. We, you know, you got rain, we got 50 degrees and sunshine. Welcome to Denver. Welcome to Denver. It'll be raining in like 12 degrees tomorrow there. And then it'll be 100 degrees It might be 12 and then it might be 75 on Friday. But yeah, that's pretty much how we do this. So awesome, man. Well, let's get out of here. You guys, thanks again for listening. This is show 11 of the uh, show 11. (laughs) Show 211 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. And we will see you next week. I'm Josh Dorkin signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.